this is the NATO Sessions. I'm comedian NATO Green. This is my podcast. This is a production of 3200 Stories, the digital venue of the San Francisco Jewish Community Center. Uh, if you want to see me do stand-up comedy, you can see me every Friday night at the business at the Hemlock Tavern in San Francisco. Or I have a special show coming up on November 25th at Z-Space. It's a Tuesday um, with the imaginary radio program, Drennan Davis and DJ Real. It's kind of a musical comedy stand-up sketch hybrid thing. It's hard to explain, but it's great. Uh, so it'll be really fun. Check it out. My guest today on the podcast is Jeff Chang, who's an author most known for Can't Stop, Won't Stop, which is a book about the history of hip-hop. His new book, just out now, is called Who We Be, The Colorization of America. Uh, and it's great. It's sort of, it's about Mer- America's race conversation. And uh, we met up in his house at Berkeley, in his house at Berkeley, in Berkeley, I don't know what I'm saying. Uh, I really enjoyed talking to him. Could have talked a lot longer. This is the first of a 52-part series of me talking to Jeff Chang about stuff. So uh, enjoy. Jeff Chang, uh, author, uh, intellectual, uh, <laughs> empresario, mogul. Uh, <laughs> your your new book is called Who We Be, The Colorization of America. Uh, out, like, just it just came out just came out on tuesday yeah, a few days ago now so uh i happen to have um a pdf that you emailed me a few <laughs> we'll months change ago that. I, I got you i got you man on the on the on the finished copy thing oh that's very exciting yes uh, so it uh and i and i've been i've been reading it um i didn't i didn't get all the way to the end because i got sick this week um <laughs> it's so long, i can i curse on this by the way absolutely i was about to say it's a long ass book and i was like maybe i shouldn't say ass yeah no well uh, so <laughs> uh it's about it's about colorization in the race conversation in america and spoiler alert obama dies at the end so, <laughs> um, it's a tragedy it's a tragedy as all as all it's like dystopian as tragedy all, as all sort of yeah. hong kong cantonese uh Movies must end. Right. The, yeah, the closing. The hero has to die. The, the hero dies, and the closing shot is of Melissa Harris Perry with on a rooftop with a rifle. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so okay. So this, uh, so first with a ballad all, with a with a cantopop ballad playing behind. Right. Her. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So the first thing about the book is that like. I know that you did a lot of research for the book and preparation, but the <laughs> yeah. book comes off like you just had a bunch of stories to tell and you spit it out. You know? Oh, that's nice. That's um, nice of you to say. Yeah. Uh, like it's it's it's. I, you know, I just kept reading these things, being like, "How did he think to tell that story?" You know, mm. um, uh, you know, it's a kind of, like like all, every story that you tell feels like the memories of of someone who was there when it happened. Mm. Um, so that that was part of why it was fun to read. Uh, clearly, I mean, the book has has an argument, and so my first question is like, sort of, what happened that made you know that there there I I got the sense that there was some moment something happened where you were like, oh, this motherfucker, I'm going to write a book, and you'll see. <laughs> <laughs> um. Yeah, there, it's there's a specific day, which actually I have to go back and figure out what the date was, but it was sometime I think in 2006, and what we did was. Uh, we had two panels that the Ford Foundation had helped to fund. Uh, so we brought Greg Tate and Mark Anthony Neal and Brian Cross and Trisha Rose was supposed to come. And the idea was talking about hip hop in this post-multicultural moment. That was the crazy title for it. And I didn't really know what that meant. Um, but I thought, let's get all of these brilliant folks to talk about it. And they just, 
blew my mind. Um, reflecting about uh, their sort of experiences and perceptions of the multiculturalism movement. You know, so great for 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 Vijay Prashad, uh, who was uh, on the panel. Um, it was the grand illusion. Multiculturalism was like the grand illusion. He had in mind like a picture of the cabinet, the Bush, you know, the George W. Bush cabinet with Colin Powell and Condoleezza Rice sitting right in the center, you know. And uh, for Mark Anthony Neal, it was something that he went through in college and it was sort of a hustle. It was a way to get funds for the student of color groups at the time. And, uh, you know, Brian Cross had grown up uh, in Ireland. And so when he came out, he was uh, to the Bay Area uh, in, in, in the mid 80s. He was, a, he was very well aware of the culture wars and very aware of how race was playing into all of these different types of discussions about race. And so it was an exciting moment for him. And for Greg Tate, who is, who's uh, older than all of us and the godfather to all our styles, he saw it as this moment where all these cultural nationalisms from the 60s were coming together, um, particularly in the Bay Area. So I was like, whoa, I didn't, I, I knew, but I didn't really know all this stuff. I thought, ah, oh, this, there's something really interesting here. And then there was a conversation later that evening at the Bronx Museum where Lydia Yi, who was a curator there then, and now she's at the Barbican, had put together a show at Franklin Sermons. It's another amazing curator who's now at LACMA on hip hop in contemporary art. And she wove this narrative about the contemporary art world where she talked about the 1993 Whitney Biennial as being this turning point in contemporary arts where multiculturalism kind of, the wave of multiculturalism broke and all of a sudden uh, this massive elite backlash was organized. And so for about a decade plus, um, identity in the art world, particularly racial identity was kind of like, it was not the thing anymore. And you would be penalized as an artist of color if you were saying that you're openly gonna address issues of race. And that kind of blew my mind as well, um, thinking about that. Because again, I had lived through all of this, but I'd never put it together that way. And so the book was kind of, in some ways, it was revisiting um, you know, my, my uh, formative years in, in the culture wars as sort of a bystander and an unwitting participant as a student of color activist in, in that era. It, so say more about what, 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 was your, what was your participation in the culture wars? What do you, I, what do you mean by that? I was part of the first class at, at Cal to, that was, that was a majority minority, which who even knows what that shit means anymore, right? Um, we can unpack that for days, but... Minority white. Minority white, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Actually, yeah, that's a lot more precise, right? <laughs> um, whites had, had, you know, tipped under 50% that year. And, uh, and all of a sudden you had all these reporters coming out from the New York Times and New Republic, all of these sort of, you know, vaguely liberal types of, you know, outlets coming out to report on the menace that multiculturalism was and what these kids, these student activists were getting indoctrinated in, you know, this sort of forms of political cor correctness and, and uh, you know, they're asking for more faculty diversity, you know, and they're asking for, um, you know, codes of conduct that won't tolerate hate speech. And they're asking for all of these unreasonable things 
um, isn't this the end of American society? Aren't we about to balkanize into all these warring ethnic factions and um, all kinds of hysteria, really, uh, anti-multiculturalist hysteria? And as a student, I, of course, was on the other side of that. Um, didn't really understand, I think, the, the national scope of, of, of the debate, although I, th I think I thought I did at the time. Um, but I, I didn't really understand what the stakes were uh, around these culture wars. And, um, and so when I wrote Can't Stop, Won't Stop, it that was kind of in the background. And so after Can't Stop, Won't Stop, I, I felt like, well, what happened there? And, and why haven't I processed this stuff? And why don't I start processing this stuff? So essentially, Can't Stop, Won't Stop is one big therapy uh, couch session and stuff with the reader. Um, but with a lot of cool stories, hopefully, in, in it. So, can't stop, who we be? I mean, who we be? Excuse right. me, who we be? Yeah, uh, can't stop. Was, was a different kind of therapy. It was um, a different kind of therapy. Yeah. Uh, so the um, the and was that was the the hysteria about the culture wars was that something that was imposed on Berkeley from the outside or or were you experiencing it like were the white students on campus freaking out too? Um, I you know I was really aware of uh, the. I became, I guess, really aware of, of the divisions around uh, race with, um, well, first of all, I, you know, I, I grew up in Honolulu, Hawaii. And so moving to Berkeley was my first experience with living in a white majority, you know, setting. And literally within the first couple of weeks of being there, I'd already experienced, um, you know, several racial incidents um, just on the street. You know, on Telegraph Avenue, on Bancroft Avenue, our Bancroft Way, um, frat folks, you know, crazy old hippies, you know, um, calling me names, physically trying to, like, get into, like, fights or things and stuff like that. Um, and I'm like, wow, I'm definitely not in Honolulu anymore. <laughs> um, so that was an awakening. And I think that what what was also happening was you know, the, the, this was, I was part of, I guess, the generation that was the product of all the victories of the civil rights movement, you know, so the Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act, and the Immigration and Nationality Act, all creating these huge demographic shifts and, and sort of openings to the mainstream of public life for folks of color, communities of color. Uh, and so we were the youth of, of color who were who are now coming onto these campuses during the 80s. And that's, I think, where the hysteria begins is, is um, when students like me, young people like me, would encounter these types of racial incidents, which were, which were pretty mundane. They were pretty everyday. Um, I mean, you know, some of them were microaggressions. Some of them were real aggressions. Um, you know, we wouldn't be happy about it. And we'd want to, to, to get together and find other people that were going through the, the same kind of thing. And naturally... Um, I think moving into uh, organizing uh, around those kinds of issues on campus. And so that's, I think, what prompts um, the backlash. And so, you know, after these debates at Stanford happen, uh, it results in the changing of the graduation requirements from Western civilizations to something that's more inclusive called cultures, ideas, and values. And this is sort of an intellectual debate, uh, but it, it's, it's, uh, such a threat that in Hayward, um, 
the right wingers, the conservatives, begin to organize the National Association of Scholars. And the National Association of Scholars was formed specifically to address this outbreak of 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 quote unquote political correctness, you know, by all these quote unquote tenured radicals with their quote unquote oppression studies and, you know, all of their blind sort of young followers that were, you know, on their way to tearing apart the union. So um so it was real and 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 I was aware that all these kinds of currents were happening. I didn't really know how to uh address it. I just knew that I was young I was uh, happy to have a, a good enemy to fight, and uh, and I was very sure of what my positions were. Right. Well, that's that, that's uh, that's also a graduation requirement. Um, <laughs> yeah. So it's interesting, you know. So I I'm 39, yeah. and I was very aware of being of the generation of student activists who came after the anti-apartheid struggles, and uh, the Central American Solidarity stuff, sort of the Zapatista was sort of just getting going when I was in college. Um, but I preceded the anti-sweatshop, campus living wage, globalization protests. So I feel like I was right in that pocket of multiculturalism and affirmative action stuff. And I remember thinking when the when the anti-sweatshop and the globalization stuff came that I that I... This could sound weird, but that like I valued my experience as a student activist, but also regretted that I was between those generations. Do you know what I mean? Because I felt like I felt like it was it was very easy it, that that those uh, those things, the movements before and after me were outwardly focused, and so the kinds of struggles that you were talking about about representation and inclusion, and you know curriculum and access were all happening in the context of struggles over power and resources and um and i felt like it was it, it was very it very quickly became unmoored from any kind of reality outside the campus in my experience mm. uh so i'm sort of i'm, I'm interested in, in like your thoughts about successive generations of student activists and what different moments have meant that's a really great question so the for me I entered campus, I came onto campus in the second year of the sort of, I guess you could call it the last flowering of the anti-apartheid movement. And my formative political experience was almost getting the crap beaten out of me on Sproul Plaza, you know, by the police um, as we were sitting in to, to uh, block the police from removing the protesters who had formed a shantytown in front of California Hall. And uh, uh, that led me into a path of thinking a lot more about anti-racism and how, you know, how to struggle for that on, on campus. And I was drawn into uh, the movements that were happening statewide. There was a huge march in Sacramento in the late 80s that, combined all of the the statewide student groups, uh, progressive student groups, mostly student groups of color, but there's also white students uh, as well, white progressive students as well. And, you know, trying to uh, lobby for change at the campuses around, you know, the lack of diversity. Um, 
And I, the year that I graduated from Cal, we won the American Cultures graduation requirement uh, there, which is sort of the parallel to the Stanford requirement, but much more focused directly on American culture or American cultures. Um, so what I saw after that happening was the continuation of, of that movement in different ways. There was uh, sort of a cultural turn, I want to say, in the early 90s. And then I think that, you know, as you would have these moments where there would be, you know, defunding types of issues or things would break out on campus, incidents would happen on campus, you know, those would, um, you know, allow people to be able to, to continue to organize around these types of issues. And I think that, you know, the Los Angeles riots happened shortly thereafter, right, which was kind of a turning point, I think, for a lot of folks in terms of thinking about, you know, how we engage in, in progressive organizing. And that produced a whole generation of organizers who were committed to anti-racism and bringing race, for instance, into the labor movement, right, into community organizing and, um, and transforming, you know, those spaces to be much more uh, multicultural, I suppose, multiracial. Um, and I guess, you know, getting into the era that you are, are, are coming in, this is the, the period during which there's mass, the massive backlash that begins in the late 80s with the National Association of Scholars begins to culminate with these, um, with these nationally funded conservative strategies to get rid of affirmative action, right? So Ward Connerly as a UC regent is getting rid of affirmative action at the UC system and then in the state of California and that's sort of a domino effect and that happens all across the country. So the, the mid 90s you know, and the late 90s are really interesting because at the same time that multiculturalism is crossing over and hip hop is the vehicle for that to happen, right? Uh, that all of these policy shifts are occurring that are really reactionary. And what I think happens is by the end of the decade, you know, people have begun to understand that there's a, a, a global focus and, and that, you know, American corporations um, have made this shift. Um, and, and so we needed to look at our own complicity in that. And what I mean by making the shift is, is that I think that after the riots, a lot of these American, you know, sort of consumer companies and, and media companies uh, looked at the world and they said to themselves, wow, well, the world is mostly not white. It's mostly very young. And we're just selling into the suburbs. We're just selling into the white suburbs of America. The real money's out there. Right? The real money's in the streets. All those folks who are looting, those are the folks who should be buying. We have to get them incorporated into our new sort of vision of global capitalism. And they make a, they make a really, really conscious choice, I think, you know, in, in, in the latter part of 1992 going into 1993 to figure out how to incorporate all of these, these types of, of underserved right, uh, demographics, I think. Um, and so there's a new consumerism that's kind of rising by the end of the 90s at the same time that there's all these reactionary policies uh, overturning the civil rights victories. Yeah, I mean, I was, I was in college through, the, through both the bans on affirmative action and welfare reform and NAFTA and the, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, so the, um, 
the one there there's all of these like very meaty and uncomfortable contradictions that your book lays out and one of them is the ability of capitalism to absorb diversity mm -hmm. that there's that there's always been this debate on the left about whether uh whether racism is root and branch part of capitalism right. or and, you know and what your book seems to suggest is that it's possible to achieve complete equality of representation within capitalism as consumers and still have no power. Absolutely. Um, and I think that that's something that both sides of the left debate should agree upon, right? Well, you know, it's it's sort of like, is it, I mean, it's the same way that like, is it, you know, is it good for the, for, is it good for people of color to have a black president? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Is that, it's sort of like, how do you, how do you evaluate these things right. uh, when the when the when the progress is happening on the level of representation in a way that may be separate? From, and what's what's the what's the to use that old fashioned term? What's the dialectic <laughs> with with things that are happening at the level of representation as you know with sort of relationships of power? Right, and 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 the way that I tried to frame it exactly right. The way that I tried to frame it was calling it sort of the paradox of this quote-unquote post-racial moment, which is that we've seen all this cultural desegregation, but yet the indices of racial resegregation, of racial gaps from, you know, income to housing to educational attainment to wealth are all growing much, much, much larger at a, at a faster rate than we've ever seen. Um, so how do we square those two is, is, the, is the sort of... Uh, dialectic that we're that we're facing now and and the thing that's interesting about this old debate in the left about well class is the primary identity uh versus uh this notion of intersectionality that it's about the intersections of class and race and gender and sexuality and all these other types of um, identities that are there the the debate that's that's been had um is is sort of uh, it's sort of an artificial one. Um, it, it, to me, it's pretty clear that uh, if you're looking at it from the point of view of organizing, most people will enter into liberation movements uh, through identity. Um, and that's just uh, a fact. That's just the way that, that a lot of people will come to, you know, to, to thinking about uh, the revolution, so to speak, right? Um, in a moment at which uh, you know, Marxism is is perhaps at a low ebb. Um, and I'm not just talking about now, you know, post-Occupy, I'm talking about in general for the last 20 or 30 years. Um, because we could talk about, you know, where we're at in the post-Occupy moment and, and make qualifications there, but I'm talking in the main, right? Um, that's how people kind of enter into movements. So that's the organizing practical side of it. But on the other side of it, the intellectual side of it, um, if you if you only take class as your single, you know, uh, factor, then how do you explain, you know, racial resegregation, and how do you explain these growing gaps in inequality? Um, why has it been, uh, you know, worse for blacks, Latinos, Indigenous folks, and a lot of Asian American groups than it has been for whites? And in order to have a healthy and growing movement, given that the demographics are changing, you know, that's an intellectual question to be solved as well as an organizing question. And I think you can't escape the fact 
that intersectionality is the way to understand these things. Uh, We've gotten really freaking intellectual on this, man. That's <laughs> that's uh, uh, that's what it feels like to be inside my head. Um, <laughs> is is you're constantly crossfading between being super wonky yeah. and uh, talking about your dick. Um, so um, the so I wanted to ask you to t- to sort of recap a couple of the stories from your book. Absolutely. Um, could you talk some about Donald Newman? Ooh, wow. Okay, Donald Newman was uh, a young artist uh, from the brand new suburbs outside of Los Angeles who, you know, in the sort of, you know, late 70s um, comes to New York at the moment that the punk counterculture is beginning to explode in the downtown area. And this is a an era that's been um, talked about a lot and it's hard not to see it kind of romantically if you read a book like Patti Smith's Just Kids, which is just a beautiful, brilliant, wonderful kind of evocation of of this moment, uh, um, uh, living sort of on the edge of the counterculture, right, in the beginnings of the punk movement. I, I feel like Jonathan Lethem's Fortress of Solitude both makes me romantic and scared about that period. <laughs> yeah, and and everybody's kind of been going back to that period of late. I guess it's sort of a generational type of thing, you know? Um, and uh, and what was interesting to me was, okay, so when I was doing Can't Stop, Won't Stop, I was really interested in the downtown scene because, of course, hip-hop comes in in 1980 and begins to transform, you know, the entire downtown arts counterculture. And so you have this amazing moment where you have these, like, kids from the Bronx and Uptown and... Uh, and the boroughs coming downtown and meeting up with these, you know, crazy, wild, avant-garde white folks, um, you know, like John Sex on the one hand, you know, and Keith Haring on the other, you know, um, Patty Astor and Fab Five Freddy becoming, you know, best of friends and all of this sort of amazing mixing. And we've romanticized, I romanticized that period pretty openly and Can't Stop, Won't Stop. But the period just before that in the downtown was much more fraught. There was a lot of homophobia and there was a lot of racism in the in the punk counterculture movement at the time. And so this artist... Um, so you're saying that it was it's good that Soho was gentrified? <laughs> I actually didn't say that. Did okay. I say that? No, you didn't say that. <laughs> but uh, what if I did? Anyway, <laughs> um, that would be interesting. We could play that one out too. No, it's, it, you know, so it's interesting because right before that, that, that moment was this explosion that had happened around the set of paintings that Donald Newman had made um, that he called the inward drawings. And this set off uh, this really amazing moment, I think, in the downtown history that's been kind of, it hasn't been, it, I think it hasn't been forgotten amongst a certain set of people. And it was never necessarily something that bubbled up to the, the, the top of the art world. Although it did spawn all kinds of discussion in, in, in the East Coast sort of art scene at the time. And everybody uh, who's come through it still can remember this moment. Well, he, he enabled the, 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 the drawings after the, the N-word, these paintings that he had done after the N-word. And uh, as a result, artists of color began to mobilize against this little sort of avant-garde gallery called 
a publicly funded, largely publicly funded gallery called Artist Space, which still survives to this day and has been incredibly influential. And uh, and so they organize against uh, this, and all of these issues of racial exclusion in the contemporary art world come out. And uh, and what was interesting to me about this incident was two things. One was that these were folks who were very intimate friends with each other. Um, and this was the discussion that these friends had never had. Uh, so it goes to the question of this so-called race conversation that we uh, are trying to have and can't have, right? This is 1979. And, and the other thing that happens is that it sets into motion this series of events when the artists are organizing against artist space that become about attaching um, issues to funding. And so the artists of color and the progressive artists who are protesting the, the inward drawings uh, ask the NEA and uh, the funding agency in New York City to consider defunding artist space because of the, the horrible exclusion that's been you know, uh, in place for so many years um, around this space and all these other uh, spaces for art. As a way of trying to leverage the issue of cultural inequity, they you know, ask for the space to be defunded. And so it becomes in a really weird kind of way a model for what you see at the end of the 80s when the religious right begins to organize against contemporary art and uses these claims against Robert Maplethorpe and Audrey Serrano um, and David Wanneritz, the forces of these Philistine legislators, you know, to say, oh yeah, why are we funding this art? Um, and, and, uh, and, and in some ways it's this horrible precursor to all, all kinds of things that you see happening. And it happens at the moment before all of these sort of um, rituals of action and reaction are put into place. Um, and so it's, it's sort of, I know for me it kind of represents maybe a, a moment of, of, um, of um, a, sort of this proto, prototype type of moment for what happens in the culture wars in the 80s and the 90s and on up to now. Um, yeah, well, I mean, part of what was so fascinating to me about that story was about how the, that it was like, I could, I, everything that unfolded in terms of how the outrage cycled, I see happen 25 times a week on Twitter. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> right, and it happens like in, in, in real time and super fast. Yeah. So, you know, the idea that like that, that, the things that we we that we associate with the internet and social media now about how people get criticized and responded and allegedly held accountable for things it's sort of like oh they were doing that before the internet mm -hmm. they would just be dudes in a room yelling yeah, um, yes exactly yeah so uh um and uh, well let me let me also make the point too it's it's that we've kind of ritualized this uh this thing where some celebrity says something crazy, like Michael Richards gets up and says something insane, or Mel Gibson, or Don Sterling, and you know suddenly the the TV, you know the cable TV news channels are full of their news crawls, you know, 
Donald Sterling's a racist, you know. Um, Michael Richards is a racist. Mel Gibson's a racist. And for 36 hours, that's all you're hearing about. And then it's done. And it's like, okay, well, what about the issues that were raised by this? Um, but we've been able to train, we've been trained in a, in a, in a way to respond to um, these instances of, of outright racism, not by having a race conversation, but by having a race spectacle. Yeah, say more about this race spectacle thing. So it's kind of like we've figured out these rituals to almost avoid the conversation. You know, Iggy Azalea says something on Twitter, you know, retweet, condemn, modify tweet. You know what I mean? Um, comment on tweet and, uh, and not necessarily have the conversation about what's underneath the comment. You know, and, and the, are you the, saying that 140 characters isn't the optimal <laughs> medium for dealing with 500 years of oppression? <laughs> no, actually, I'm not. <laughs> I think we should be able to do it in 100. Uh, <laughs> we have too many characters. Exactly, too too many characters. Yeah, uh, reduce the count. No, um, the the uh, what I think I'm trying to say is that we figured out a way to avoid having the real discussion that we need to have. And with Don Sterling, it was a little different because he had this long period during which the NBA had to, you know, the NBA reacts and then he's trying to figure out how to maintain his ownership. And so the window uh, for Don Sterling stayed open and into that media filled the gap with some really interesting stories. Like, like we all found out that Don Sterling made his fortune uh, by perpetuating housing segregation, right? And perpetuating, you know, horrible, uh, you know, slumlord practices uh, against people of color. And so we were able to get underneath this crazy plantation, you know, owner image of him, right? Um, to the nuts and bolts of, of what it actually means, uh, you know, structurally to, to, to lots and lots and lots of people. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, and so that was a little bit different. Um, I, I felt like that conversation ended up a little bit different, but it, those kinds of things are, are very few and far between in this sort of non-race conversation, race conversation that we have. Do you feel like the race conversation that you want to have is a public conversation? Uh, I think it's public and private. Definitely. I, I think that part of the public piece is trying to figure out how we create a culture that points towards racial justice um, because if we, you know, are, are, are trying to get to a racial justice agenda, we have to be able to reach the consensus first. And so we have to be able to have the imagination that this is something that's even plausible and possible. And we're not even there yet. Uh, and are there moments that you can think of where you felt like there was something heading towards the conversation that was successful? Hmm. No, no, I'm pretty cynical about that, actually. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, the private piece that you're talking about is crucial as well, you know, and I think that I think that, that in some ways is a harder a harder piece. You know, in the wake of Ferguson, they did a poll, uh, CBS and, and the New York Times did a poll. And they asked two questions and they said, you know, one of the questions was, Do you think that the events that have happened here in Ferguson have you know, taking us, uh, do they, do they raise issues that we ought to be discussing about in regards to race? 
And the other question was, do you think that the events in Ferguson uh, are drawing too much attention to race and we have to dial it back a little bit? And turns out there was a big gap in that as well, right? Blacks thought that it raised significant issues that needed to be discussed around race. Large, large, you know, majority of blacks. Um, whites, not so much. But on the other question about whether race was getting too much attention, you know, there was a strong plurality of whites who were like, yes, you know, it's too much, there's too much uh, being talked about here around race. So one invitation, one person's invitation to the race conversation is another person's like cue to, to you know, go on a, go on a potty break. Um, yeah, it's, but, it, you know, it's also like, what that makes me think of is, uh, you know, m- movies that there's that there are fictional things that are part of it, right? Mm-hmm. You know, there there were a lot of people who felt like who felt like Ferguson is talking too much about race. Probably love Django Unchained. Mm. You know what I mean? Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Um, or you know, loved Avatar, right? right. <laughs> you right, know right, what right, I mean? Right, right, right. And yeah. like, and so I'm sort of f- like. It, it uh, I'm really curious about the degree to which, you know, that last Hunger Games movie, f- as I watched it, was a call to revolution. Mm-hmm. And yet it was the made, you know, $700 million. Right. And I was like, well, either the people of the world are way more revolutionary or way more stupid than I thought. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. So, like, I don't know, I don't know how to understand these cultural expressions in the context of that race spectacle that you're describing. Yeah, and I, you know, I think it's a lot to kind of put the burden on one movie or two movies or that kind of thing. So it's kind of hard to interpret. No, I'm in blaming that. Quentin Tarantino. Okay, all right, one hundred percent. Okay, I'm with that. Okay. I'm definitely with that. Um, but uh, it is, it is hard, definitely, to understand that. And I, I think that's sort of the weird paradox, or not paradox, paradox. I use that word too much, but you know, it's sort of the the weird sort of thing that's kind of happening with culture is, on the one hand. Um, what you want to do it? I mean, I don't know that 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 I don't know that a, a person watching Django Unchained is is um, necessarily transformed that by that particular experience alone. Um, maybe if there's an additive thing of of a whole bunch of you know pieces working in concert together, and then an alternative op, uh, you know sort of political you know, alternative offered, you know, that maybe people then respond. And that was sort of the, mm, that was sort of the hope anyway that we saw, um, pun intended, I guess, in the 2008 election. You know, nobody could have necessarily imagined a black president, I think, in 2006. Um, and, And certainly what we got is not necessarily maybe what we wanted, but there was a moment at which everybody, not everybody, but you know, a lot of people were were investing in the symbol of Obama, and that there was there was this sort of proliferation. For me, two thousand eight, the street art of two thousand eight is really fascinating. It's probably the closest thing we've had to this explosion of art um, during the the New Deal era, right? Which was, of course, government funded. In this case, it wasn't government funded. It was largely, you know citizen funded or people funded um and yet there were all of these images and visions of what 
a new America, a new democracy could look like. So it's, it's, it's stuff that's spilling way over what the democratic agenda was and what Barack Obama was even talking about in any of his speeches. But you're, you're looking at images around immigration and uh, recurring images of the third world you know, liberation movement, you know, coming back and stuff around environmental justice and all of these kinds of images were sort of these images of hope that kind of, you know, were able to be attached to um, what was, I think, pegged as an alternative at that particular point. What if we had a series of alternatives that, that were going along with that? Would people choose the better option? You know, I, that's the question that I'm always hopeful about. And, uh, and yet, you know, it's probably, you know, you know, despite all the, con you know, the, the, the evidence to the contra contrary, basically, that I'm still hopeful about it. Well, I mean, I think, you know, one of, one of the sobering things about being, becoming an activist as a young person is you spend the rest of your life discovering how much harder it is than you thought it was going to be when you were 18. Yeah, <laughs> you know totally. what I mean? Like yeah. when you're 18, you're like, this is it. We're doing it. It's all coming down tomorrow. <laughs> oh, it's not. You know, oh, it didn't. Yeah. You look back, you're like 30, you're 35, you're 40. You're like, wait, what? what right. Just, what happened? So it's like, it's like, I, I feel like we are continually underestimating what, how, like how much of an alternative we need to construct for people to believe that it's real. I agree. I agree. And I also think we're underestimating, you know, the probably the the uh extent to which we've we've actually been successful and and pushed the the ball down the field. So one of one of the things related to that 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 I wanted to ask you about is like that sort of things there's a weird way that on these on these issues things speed up and slow down. Right. Do you know what I mean? Like you know, before uh in May of 2006, the immigrant rights movement exploded. Yes. Uh, and it was electrifying. Mm -hmm. In December of 2005, did any of us know that was about to happen? Mm -mm. You know what I mean? Uh, and, and suddenly there was an opportunity, you know, and it happened in a different way about Obama. That's, you know, there are these sort of moments where like suddenly the sky opens and there's a, a possibility and people are coming out of the woodwork and sort of, you know, it happened in a different way around Occupy. That it's it sort of, you know, there's this narrative in our culture that that the body politic has been placid since the '60s, mm -hmm. and then in my lifetime, I can think of, you know, ten or fifteen times where suddenly it felt like everything was happening around me. Right. And it's not sustained, and it's never as big as I want it to be. But yeah, those things don't stop happening. <laughs> yeah. Um, we we're continually surprised. It's a, it's a beautiful thing. And what do you what do you think of as the role of culture in that process? Well, I believe in culture. You know, I, I I did my time in the state legislature, and I don't believe in the state legislature, and I don't believe that'll in, take years off your life. Uh, it'll yeah, every single day will take years off your life. Yeah, um, and uh, I I believe in in the good people who are working in in the system. You know, um, but I also don't believe that that's how we change the imagination or the direction of where the country is heading. I think that um, that it's it's a daily it's a daily thing. You know, it's happening on Twitter right now, even as we're speaking. It's happening on Facebook right now. It's it's this sort of push and pull of different tides and 
this big ocean of culture um, that that's that's happening and and so I you know uh, to you kind of have to take a leap of faith to be able to say that because you, you don't have anything really to be able to point to that's solid you can't it's very difficult to put together measurables for all the people who want statistics and and empirical you know data uh, sometimes uh, we're trying to do it but it sometimes it's, it's hard to do that um, it's really measured by lives that are changed and and sort of you know futures that that are created that weren't imagined before and that's the kind of stuff that happens a lot of times in retrospect but I believe that cultural change you know precedes political change um, I believe that that if we are are you know sowing um, actually Yahida said this Yahida Carrillo from Culture Strike said this last night <coughs> she said culture is like the soil so you can plant the seeds but you have to kind of take care of the soil because if the soil is not good seeds aren't going to grow um, and uh, and artists are the compost of the soil <laughs> <laughs> Yes, yes. We're the scraps on the table that get thrown in there that uh, allow the, the soil to ferment and create the right kind of, um, you know, temperature and, and, and uh, I don't know what the scientific terms are. Do you? No, not at all. <laughs> but yeah, make it happen and shit. <laughs> I, I think that's the scientific term is make yeah, it happen Yeah, yeah, make it shit. happen and shit, right. Yeah. We're, the, we're the compost that makes shit happen. Um. Uh, cool. That's <laughs> when I was uh, coming up. I think that the line was that because of these movements, the artists, you know, shifted, right? So because of because of um, Vietnam, the, the anti-war movement, Marvin Gaye made "What's Going On." I think that was one of the you know, one of the big types of uh, analogies. And I think that these days we've been more interested in kind of looking at examples of the way that the culture moved before um, politics, um, such as Jackie Robinson taking the field seven years before Brown versus Board of Education could even be imagined. Um, so, and and certainly I think that that what we've seen happening in the culture uh, say around uh, gay marriage, right? Um, or even just sort of the perception of of queers in our society um, that culture definitely changed things before we saw uh, the legislative, the, the judicial kind of breakthroughs there as well. Right. I mean, I, I think about like uh, my cousin did a lot of work on repealing Don't Ask, Don't Tell. Mm -hmm. And the legislative victory came at the point that 70% of the electorate agreed that it was time to go. Mm -hmm. You know, it yeah. wasn't 50% plus one. It yeah, was yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Uh, it, you know, that the legislature was so far behind the public mm -hmm. on that. Um, you know, and 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 in it and in thinking about, I mean, I I get uh, uneasy about sort of un, like analogies between the racial justice struggles and, and the gay rights struggles. It's I feel like people get fast and loose about it sometimes. Okay. But uh the you know, we're at a we're at a pretty great moment in terms of gay marriage. Like mm -hmm. we kinda won. And 
there was a a point, you know, I I mean, I, I even feel like, you know, there was that window of time before Prop 8, those few months that gay marriage was legal in California. And people felt like Prop 8 was a big setback. And I was like, no, man, we've already won. Like the dam burst, the train has left the station. From I mean, I'm 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 just gonna keep mixing metaphors. Um, uh, you know that from now on, it's just going to be a scrimmage fight. Mm. It's not. It's not going to be a. It's you know, and and then it took another six years for that to happen. You know, here on on the racial justice questions, you know, as as Hari Kondabolu says, we're all waiting for 2042. Right, and you know, and white America can see the writing on the wall is kind of freaking out about it you know i sort of am feeling like i just want to choose to be on the winning side of history and i realize that my people are outnumbered so um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, you know i don't uh i'm not trying to i I think it's a serious question though i mean like the i was telling the students my students at stanford yesterday that the question for their lifetimes is going to be if we're all minorities now what's the new majority going to look like and how is how we're going to form that you know because by the time uh we get to 2042 they'll be my age you know i told them that i was like you'll be my age which is pretty old <laughs> so you got to think about you got to start if you're going to do a favor to me and my kids and grandkids and and your kids and grandkids you should start thinking about these issues now um and I think that it's a political question, right? How you form this new majority is a political question. And certainly the Democrats and the Republicans are, are, are putting a lot of resources into trying to figure that. And they're screwing up awfully in a lot of ways. Um, but it, I think more, more deeply than that, it's a cultural question. Because we could get to 2042 and have these demographics and still have the policies in place that were left to us from the culture wars um, still be more moving on a track towards fixing resegregation into place and we're not talking about class anymore we're talking about caste now you know um and i think that that the possibility of that is very very real so if we can't get to you know a cultural shift then we're not even going to be able to imagine being able to implement that racial uh justice agenda and so uh so i told him i'm like it's on you y'all you guys have to stop these culture wars um because you know we've been trying and and it's still going so right although you know as you say like you frequently we don't know what we're looking at until it's way over yeah and and you know it could be that by 2042 this the story that we're telling is and then jeff chang won the culture wars (laughs) (laughs) suddenly i'm the cynic and you're the you're the optimist (laughs) unreasonably optimistic i should say no i'm I'm always the optimist that's i couldn't i could i wouldn't get out of bed if i if i was that's uh that's the that's the i love it so this is like a is it like a comic mask in a way uh you know, I mean, who is it who said that that cynicism is is the stance of self defense against the pain of unrequited hope? Yes, yes, uh, which I totally believe in. You know, that was my AP English uh, thing about the Great Gatsby, actually. You know, like, <laughs> my essay in the anybody AP can English. be a nihilist. It's, yeah. it's much, it's much, it's a much harder road to be open hearted. Yeah, <laughs> true. You know, I so. think that's true. Uh, one one other thing, you know, I've I, I'm a San Francisco native, and I've been really involved and and engaged in the anti-gentrification struggles in the city and uh you know it just 
yesterday the announcement was that the the last legendary lesbian bar in the mission district is closing right uh you know and there is i mean for for pe- those of us who have been around for a long time there is a sense of feeling suffocated and one of the you know as you say paradoxes intentions that come up in your book is uh is what you know if i if i were a cynical person would suggest would be a a deliberate ploy by urban elites to use arts funding to diffuse some of the political grievances related to gentrification. Mm -hmm. And I hope you could uh, talk about that a little bit. Actually, I do a little bit in the book. Um, I I don't deal with space, I think, nearly as much in this book as I do in Can't Stop, Won't Stop, but it's something that's always on my mind and it's something that's been something, uh, it's it's been something that's that that I track and follow very closely. I do talk a lot about larger questions of physical housing segregation in the wake of the foreclosure crisis. And of course, end um, the book with a, a huge episode set in Lancaster talking in, you know, about the notion of the American dream and um, how that kind of implodes on the des- in, uh, in the California desert. Um, but in this particular instance, um, what I think is really, really interesting is uh, is is that in so many ways um, there's there's this dance that artists um, always enter into. Um, you know, we were talking today about countercultures, and and uh, you know we have an event. You know that the Asian American Writers Workshop is. Is, is called their, you know, countercultures. And we're doing this amazing thing in New York City. And they're like, get your tickets before we sell out. And I'm like, countercultures always sell out. You know, <laughs> it just happens. And there's this weird dance that artists enter into once they reach a critical mass in the neighborhood between becoming, you know, celebrated and all that kind of stuff. And it, it helps, you know, it, as an artist, you want the attention, you want people to think you're sexy. You know, um, and and the thing of also like sticking the middle finger up when you need to f- with the same people that are your patrons, right? Um, so there's a there's a really interesting gentleman in the heart of the book, Daniel Joseph Martinez, who is I, I wrote him down. Ask about Daniel Joseph Martinez. He's right a, yeah, he's he's <laughs> a, he's a genius, and he's just one of my heroes. Um, and one of the things that he did was. Um, in the early 90s, they were trying to commission public art for the the Yerba Buena Gardens area, Moscone Center area, that they had just redeveloped, right? And in the process of doing that, of course, they wiped out all of these older neighborhoods where a lot of uh, Filipino immigrants and Latino immigrants and African Americans had lived. Uh, they just raised all of these tenements and dropped this arts district right into the middle of the city. And so they were soliciting um, they were soliciting uh, proposals for public art to be made on that space. And Daniel, uh, being the guy that he is, a maverick that he is, um, entered into the contest with a group of people and, and, and they went and they heard all of these city officials um, talking about what's going to happen in this area. And they just kept on hearing over and over again, this is a nice neighborhood. This is going to be a nice neighborhood. It's going to be a great place. It's going to be a wonderful neighborhood. And so they literally made 
a proposal in which they put these signs up, one of which would have been facing Chinatown, the other which would have been facing the mission that would have said, this is a nice neighborhood. <laughs> and, 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 and to his credit, Herb Cain, uh, San Francisco legend, uh, defender of the San Francisco elites, um, recognize that Martinez and his crew were basically putting a middle finger right in the eye of all of the city officials that had been sponsoring this contest and started railing against it and uh, was able through his columns to actually have the proposal permanently tabled. Um, and I think, you know, they went ahead and, and they did, you know, other stuff. There's a beautiful, actually, Keith Haring sculpture uh, there now that's a hip-hop sculpture that people don't necessarily, may not even necessarily recognize until, you know, if you're walking uh, along uh, the street across from the MoMA, you might see it and that kind of thing. But there's no signs that say this is a nice neighborhood. Right. There's that Martin Luther King fountain. Oh, the Martin Luther King fountain inside the Yerba Buena Gardens. Yes, that's right. Um yeah, so public art, you know, and and the the ability of of artists to publicly kind of um, make this intervention in space and and mess with people, fuck with people, really, um, um, is is the that's the eternal tension. So, uh, P.S. Uh, Daniel Joseph Martinez's Wikipedia page is pretty crummy. Is it? There's there's like it's not it it's not informative at all. So really? somebody okay. somebody needs to uh, get on that. Okay. Um, uh, okay. Last question. Uh, recently on Facebook, another San Francisco comedian uh, who's much younger than me uh, and is not white referred to me as "quote one of the trillest motherfuckers in the game right now." <laughs> Do I and, agree or disagree? As, I agree. Well, as an older <laughs> as an older person, I didn't know what he was talking about. And for you, <laughs> as a hip hop enthusiast, I need you to tell me. Does this mean I need to fight that guy? No, no, no. Actually, you should go and take him out for, for, for a beer and okay. a blunt and just chill. Because <laughs> being called trill is a good thing, Nato. You want to, oh. yeah. You actually want to put that on your on all of your literature and your website. Oh, my stationer, trillist motherfucker. Okay, cool. Yeah, Nato Green. Uh, well, thanks, thanks a lot, Jeff. I really appreciate you talking to me. <laughs> thanks for having me. That was the Nato sessions with Jeff Chang, author of Who We Be: The Colorization of America. Go get that book. Uh, the NATO Sessions is a production of 3200 Stories, the digital venue of the San Francisco Jewish Community Center. It is produced by Dan Wolf, edited by Steve Bissinger, theme music by DJ Real. Follow me on Twitter at NATO Green. Subscribe to the podcast, iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. Rate it, review it, share it, all that. Uh, follow us, and we'll get new episodes coming soon. Thanks a lot. Bye. <laughs>